Uh, I do want to say I, I am glad to be here with you. I'm glad to be with the Hoffmans. Obviously, know them well since California. Glad to be with your pastor. I'm appreciative of his leadership and uh, love and care for you. Um, mm-hmm. He and I had some good time earlier together, just uh, encouraging each other, praying together, and uh, excited for what the Lord is doing with you. Uh, now living in Indianapolis myself, moved to Indianapolis uh, about two and a half years ago. So I'm not in California anymore. I live in Indianapolis, so I was able to drive down here last night. And so that works well for me to be able to come down and be with you guys uh, for tonight and tomorrow and then drive back tomorrow and uh, be with my people on Sunday. So uh, thankful for these uh, two days we have together. Um, and I, I know kind of what this is like, particularly in a retreat style. It's it's like a blind date. You know, you're kind of figuring me out. I'm figuring you out. and not sure if we're clicking or not, and stories are working or not, illustrations are working or not, and you're trying to figure out, you know, was this a good call? Should we ask Dave to find us another preacher for next year, or should we maybe, like, rotate off the, his wish list into somebody else? So, um, but in all sincerity, I am, uh, I'm glad to speak to a room full of men. It's not often that I get time in this sort of concentrated sense to speak to a group of men, and the reason I'm excited about it is because of the, the potential impact that Seeming a basement conversation has, um, what happens in this room will have a ripple effect of what happens out of this room. And so to be able to do that together for two days' time in conversation and then the corresponding dialogue that happens with you is, is definitely um, something I look forward to see what happens. been praying for this. Other people who don't even know you are praying right now uh, as I speak to you. We're praying right now for you and uh, for our time together in the Word. So I'm looking forward to seeing what those prayers produce in our hearts. In light of prayer, in light of its significance to those people praying, let's join with them in praying and ask God to bless this time, and then we'll get into what we have for the evening. Father, thank you so much for the gift of your Son, Jesus, the Christ, the Redeemer, the Messiah, our Savior. It is in light of that eternal reality, the redemption that is found in Him and in Him alone, that we gather tonight. We can do meals on our own. We have our own places of residence that we can be in tonight. We have family and friends, others besides this group that we could be with. But we are here tonight as yet another illustration that we identify with you and therefore we identify with your church, with your bride for whom you have shed your blood. God, we thank you for the gift of fellowship. Fellowship that comes as we learn in your word in 1 John, fellowship with you, Father, and with you, Jesus. And by the gift of your spirit, fellowship with each other. We thank you for the gift of adoption, that we are not only justified in our standing before you, being declared righteous with the promise of continuing sanctification and ultimately glorification, but the gift of adoption that says, as you have so clearly spoken through your servant Paul in Galatians, that we cry to you, Abba, Father, and that you hear us, and that Jesus is, according to your word in Hebrews 2, our elder brother. Who are we but sinners? Who are you but an amazingly, overwhelmingly holy God? We thank you for your son who has bridged this relationship. God, I pray for myself as the communicator of your word. 
speaking the very oracles that you have given in your revealed word. I pray for all of these men present as they receive your word. God, where there is obedience, let us be encouraged, giving you the honor. Where there is disobedience, let us be convicted by your spirit, confessing, repenting, and recognizing we are forgiven in Christ. God, I pray that you would use tonight and tomorrow as an opportunity to make an impact deeply into our hearts, into our lives, and into this local church, Calvary. For your honor, for our good, and for those around us to see the gospel on display. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, World War II is the most commonly given name to the global conflict of 1939 to 1945. It was the greatest and most destructive war in history, whereas military operations in World War I were conducted primarily on the European continent, World War II included gigantic struggles not only in Europe but in Asia, in Africa, and even the far-flung islands of the Pacific as well. One of the significant battles took place in June of 1940. Setting the scene and understanding the context, by this time, Germany's force seemingly could not be stopped. With Italy's help, every country they went up against, they defeated. On June 14th, they entered into the capital of France. Paris. And eight days later, eight days, it was over. Within eight days, they had sacked the, the capital city, the entire country of France. The German casualties in the campaign were comparatively light. Approximately 156,000 Germans died in that battle. The British incurred 68,000 casualties plus the loss of almost all of their weapons and their equipment, the French have estimated that they lost 123,000 plus men and 200,000 more wounded. And when those eight days were over, the Germans walked away with 1.5 million prisoners within eight days. Victory seemed certain for this unstoppable force. All that was left was Britain, and Germany could call it a day. Victory was surely theirs. Britain stood alone, protected only by the Royal Navy, an army almost out of guns, and 59 fighter airplanes. Are you kidding me? Not a chance. So it would seem. You can imagine the discouragement of the British. Defeat seemed inevitable. They're fighting against all odds. How could they possibly win the war when already so many battles had been lost? Friends, this is very similar to the Christian life. Count the odds. Run the numbers. Consider the statistics. Count all the resources. 
add up all the bank accounts, consider all of the different scenarios that have already unfolded, and ask yourself, just based on the statistical comparisons, does today's Christian really have that much of a chance? Does today's Christian man really have that much of a chance in the war that he is seemingly up against in the world that he's living in? Just a statistic in the making. Give it some time. This battle will be lost too. Young men grow up without any discipleship from their dads. That's the new normal. Not the exceptional. Older men living life in relational isolation where no friends, quote unquote, are actually involved in their accountability and mutual instruction. That's the normal, not the exceptional. Oldest men long for retirement where they can remove themselves from all societal contribution while they sit back and complain about how it is and compare it to how it used to be. At last, they can be a non-contributing zero. Sexual faithfulness is a thing of the past. It's a dinosaur. We dig it up and talk about it as if it once walked around, but it's not here amongst us now. Sexual confusion is the new norm. Somewhere in the middle of all of that landscape, the Christian man finds himself and wonders, what's my role in this? Should I really stage an ambush? Or should I just walk out of the woods and surrender? Depending on your latest press release, depending on the latest story to tell, sometimes honestly at a great discouragement, the belief is, just surrender. And yet, this is the time where men need to be identified the most and honestly can be identified the easiest because they can be the hardest to find. Notice my terminology, gentlemen. Men, not males. I'm not talking about anatomy. I'm not talking about biology. I'm talking about something much deeper in its significance as to the calling that is connected back to creation itself. If you're taking notes, looking for a sermon title, sometimes it sort of helps. Here's one for you. Retaking the hill is what I want to talk to you about tonight. Retaking the hill. Fighting against the curse for the cause of Christ. Fighting against the curse for the cause of Christ. We come to this topic of biblical masculinity and we have to ask the question, where do we turn to to get such a definition? GQ magazine? The latest adventure subscription off of a novel? A documentary of a man who's lived with bears for a couple of years? Where exactly do we find this definition of masculinity? Because ironically, others are looking for the same thing. And what it is that they apparently find and hold up becomes perversely something non-masculine. Becomes something as sort of a substitute for what indeed God has given. We, as Christians, turn to the God of the universe 
who created the man and the woman and has therefore in his creation has given a very unique calling to what it means to be a man. Not just a male, but a man in your responsible calling in life. I think we can find an example in the scriptures, many to be listed, but one tonight to be focused on. That's in a narrative that we can learn from. 1 Kings chapter 2. 1 Kings chapter 2. I ask you to turn there. As you're turning to 1 Kings chapter 2, let me set the context for you and not familiar with where kings are in the Old Testament. You can uh, find your way coming out of Judges and Ruth. You'll come into 1 and 2 Samuel. Then you'll come into 1 and 2 Kings. And then you'll come into 1 and 2 Chronicles. So if you're Samuel, go right. If you're Chronicles, go left. And beyond that, it's page 336. As you're turning there, 1 Kings chapter 2, the, the, the scene that we've just walked into... Honestly, is an awesome scene. We have walked into the scene recorded in the scriptures where David, King David, ruler over all of Israel and all of his military mind, all of the blessing from the Lord, the one who we've known since he was a child, known throughout his kingdom, both good and bad, all of his psalms that have been written, everything that has been recorded legendary, wouldn't even capture him in simple, single terms. Here he is, about to die. And he is giving his son, Solomon, he has many, but to Solomon the kingdom will go. He's giving his son, Solomon, what is essentially his deathbed speech. Now, deathbed speeches are telling about a person. You perhaps have had that. You perhaps have known what that's like with a brother, with a sister, with an uncle, with a father, with a mother. Final words spoken, perhaps even in that sort of Hollywood dramatic sense. Though it often doesn't work out that way in reality. The reality is those speeches happen long before the person sometimes even passes. But when those final speeches are given and you get that chance to sort of hear, if you could say one more thing, one last thing, what would you say and to whom would you say it? It's a good question to ask yourself. Because it becomes a question, it becomes a bit telling as to what did you think need to be communicated at the very end. When it all could be summed up, when it could finally be told, what is it that you would say? Well, we see this moment. We walk into this chamber, we listen in on a conversation that we have rarely ever heard of before. Ironically, and quite much of a blessing, we hear from David himself. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 1. When David's time drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. What does that mean? It's, it's a Hebrew idiom for I'm about to kick the bucket, which is another idiom for I'm about to die. <laughs> he is about to die. I'm about to go the way of all the earth. So that's kind of, the, you can you know, introduce that to your friends here. It's a new idiom. I'm about to go the way of all the earth. So what does he say in light of this to his son? Be strong. And show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies. 
as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do, and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Stop right there. We're going to continue on in a minute, but we want to spend some time in verses 1 through 4. And quite honestly, because there's so much here, we're just simply going to sort of skip the rock across the pond, passing over more than we're actually hitting. Because there is some rich stuff given to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here to learn. I'll simply give us this by way of sort of outline understanding of biblical masculinity. What we learn in this passage tonight, the first part we've just read by summary, is that manhood is seen here in two ways. First of all, in verses 1 to 4, it's seen in character. It's seen in character. You begin to unpack this. And begin to realize the significance of what's being said here. You know, essentially what Solomon's saying, or excuse me, David's saying is, okay, first things first, son. Obey God. Obey God. Here's it. You need to understand, being strong and being a man is directly connected to your fulfillment of your relationship with God. Let me say that conversely. You cannot fulfill your responsible opportunity and expectation to be a man apart from your direct obedience and relationship to the Lord. There is no such thing as an ungodly man in the truest biblical sense. There are ungodly males, but they're not ungodly men. Because the responsibility that as God has made each and every person, a male or a female, with that anatomy comes a responsibility that's represented in that. In other words, there's a specific calling with Adam and there's a specific calling upon Eve. And there's a specific calling upon them in relationships that continues to repeat itself on and on and on and on throughout the relationships that were given to us in mankind. So when we look at this passage here about this issue of characters, he's drawing this out. It says it so clearly, keep the charge of the Lord your God walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies as is written in the law of Moses. Now what's most interesting is that David's final words points to another's words. David's legacy is not concerned about his legacy. He is not looking to be remembered by his son. He wants his son to remember the Lord. But the Lord isn't dying. The Lord is still on the throne. Which they would say that's exactly right. Fathers come and go. Friends come and go. Kings rise and fall. But God always on the throne. His word, his statutes, his characteristics, his testimonies, always true and always for you. And for your sons, and for your sons' sons, and for your sons' sons' sons. That is where the commendation is set for this father. Now here's why this is encouraging. Testimonial time here. 
I don't know the home environments you come from. Come from good homes, bad homes. Loving fathers and mothers, unloving fathers and mothers. Parents married, parents divorced. I did not come from the best of homes, to say that politely and publicly. By God's grace, He does what God does. He takes what He takes, and He redeems it for His purposes. Hallelujah. But because of that fact that we perhaps don't come from good homes, we can so easily believe what is so clearly told to us today, which is a sort of victimization mindset. You weren't loved enough. You weren't hugged enough. No one taught you to play the ball. You had to teach yourself how to shave. You didn't help get help on your first job interview. And on and on and on it goes of what you were not taught by your father. Perhaps others of you, by God's grace have a completely different story. Of God's grace, perhaps you have an amazing story of your faithfulness of your father. Friends, here's the good news. Whether you come from a good home, a bad home, good dad, bad dad, the combination from the word is not back to the father, but to God himself, who gives you such clear instruction, such clear opportunity, such clear calling as to what your responsibility is, regardless of whether your father's ever taught you this. I mean, we could just do open mic night tonight. And also just kind of go around like we're sort of recovering bad sons of fathers who have failed us in some way. And the truth is, many of those dads probably did the best they could and just sort of repeated what they had learned from their fathers. But the point is, we all sort of bear the curse. Curse is given, responsibilities failed, promises made, promises broken. But what's so wonderful about God is that His Word is a promise made and a promise always kept. And so where David commends his son is to the character that's worked out from his relationship to the Lord. You look at this here so clearly. He says, keep the charge. Walk in his ways. Prosper in all that you do according to your relationship in these things. These words, walk, all their heart, all their soul. This, this consistent godly character that David is calling his son to. And you see this here in, in verse 4. If your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. No, uh, no excuses here. No wimpy cop-outs. No victimization speeches to be given. The Lord says, I expect, I, op- I give the opportunity to each and every single one of your offspring to follow the opportunity that I gave you, David. I will bless I will protect. I will love. I will care for. The relationship we see here, the connection to their close attention to their way, walking before me in faithfulness. Here's the reality. This is the part at which we need a good dose of gospel truth. Friends, this is not a speech to motivate you back to your own self-righteousness. Try harder. Read your Bible more. Study more. Uh, you know, witness more. Disciple more. Pray more. And then maybe, just maybe, I've done enough that God will say, okay, now I'll bless you. Friends, what we see in this miniaturized picture here, in this speech between David and Solomon, is what was sort of a macro version, then elaboration with Israel. That becomes a sort of a ultimate sweet reality of what Christ did. He provided 
what no one could provide for themselves, a perfect record. So that there is an opportunity for a blessing, not because of our track record, for we fail, but because of Christ's track record, for he succeeded, and all that righteousness is applied to us by faith. And the gift of that in the reality of that truth to us. So when you think about the Christian life, you need to think about it not as a subtle replacement of the gospel, but as a manifestation of the gospel. Otherwise, you slowly move from, I'm justified by faith in Christ, and I'm sanctified by myself in my works. No. The motivation is not about your self-worth, your self-righteousness. The motivation is about Christ's righteousness being made manifest, being put on display in your life. Christian life, how do we consider this? Well, just think about the terminology about the Christian life and how this is so serious. The terminology the scripture uses. It's a fight. It's a war. It's a battle. It's the work of a farmer. It talks about armor. It talks about soldier. These are the terms that scripture uses when it describes how you and me are working this out. This is no time, friends, for surrender. This is no time for cowardly speeches of victimization. Of what you did not know, of what you have not seen, of what you were not experiencing. Of, of, but you don't know my work schedule, but you don't know, understand my life. You're right, friend, I do not. But God does. By the power of His Spirit, by the clarity of His Word... He gives such life-giving, promising truths that he's saying, listen, I'm looking to you and directly connected to your character as the means by which I measure your masculinity. I mean, that's what happens here in the text. Be strong and show yourself a man. Then he goes on to show him, for him, how that will be manifest. So let me ask you a question. From somebody who has lived all over, Minnesota, Colorado, South Carolina, Florida, Los Angeles, now Indiana. I'm on my sixth day. Actually, seven seconds. I lived in Georgia there for a little bit, too. My most formidable years were age 7 to 19 years old in Columbia, South Carolina. Another South. Southern culture, which is phenomenal because we have sweet tea, fried okra, and some mean biscuits. <laughs> and I'm not lying. Southern culture can ironically replace... Biblical masculinity with cultural masculinity. So what's cultural masculinity in the South? Well, in the South, it's big trucks. I just want to be clear. I really want a big truck. I had a big Jeep Wrangler, but I don't have that right now. But I'm, I'm, I'm praying about that coming back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's guns. It's it's experiences of what you killed lately. And I'll just be honest, I think that's kind of cool too. <laughs> but if you swallow that lie, because that's all it is, just a, little, just a lie wrapped up in a pill, you swallow that thing, and then you measure yourself off of each other here on, on, on your possessions, because that's what those trucks are, sort of southern displays of masculinity, on your accomplishments, because that's sort of what those, those sort of you know, scenarios are, and then sort of you know, your, 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 your interest in other things, and that's the means which you measure your masculinity. Friends, let me just say something. You're no different, and I mean this out of sweet love for you, you're no different than Adam in the garden. Just saying, honey, whatever you want. 
Honey, whatever you want. I mean, you have spiritually neutered yourself. If that's your new definition of masculinity. The biblical definition of masculinity is being strong in the Lord. The character of your life, the character of my life, is the means by which our masculinity is measured. So let's just sort of take that practically speaking. Would the characteristic description of how you walk be one of integrity? Not while the rest of us are watching. Although none of us are present. Practically speaking, let's just consider this. When you come home from work, when I come home from work, do you engage in the battle that awaits you? You say, what's that battle? I can tell you exactly what my battle is. It's the love of self. It's the love of self that wants to say that this presentation mode I go into. I almost have a PowerPoint presentation for this. I'm so good at this presentation. Are you aware of the day that I've had? All the things I've done. I come from lands afar. (laughs) I have acquired massive possessions. I have killed many a foe. Bring me the head of something on a platter. Serve me. My little enterprise. And so the children and my wife would line up and sort of accommodate me. This hand a remote, please. This hand a beverage, please. Let me please prop up my chair. You guys need me. You know where to find me. Friends, when you do that, when that's a characteristic description of your heart in action, you're not a man. You're not a man. You're just a self-lover. Who says, I'd rather take the easy route than the hard route. You see, this is the exact same temptation that was given to Jesus in Matthew 4. What happens in Matthew 4? We have three temptations. The very last one, Satan says, here's the deal. Here's all the throne rooms. Here's all the power. It's yours. Let's do this. Let's just walk around this process that the Father has for you. You get to the same end result. But let's bypass this humiliation. Let's bypass this suffering. Let's bypass this sacrifice. That's awaiting for you. If you begin this three-year track record, you're going to have to pay some serious price. Let's bypass that. You just bow down and worship me. All this is yours. Friends, miniaturize that temptation. The temptation for what it is you want. And the desire to figure out how do I get there with the least amount of resistance and sacrifice and suffering and self-denial. Here's just in the wilderness, facing the same temptation Jesus was. Now, the good news is, he passed the temptation for us. Perfect Savior on the cross. But the question is, when we encounter those moments, and they're so small, you almost miss them. Like, there it was. There, there, there went your biblical masculinity. Let's see if we can go catch it. Bring it back. Try again here tomorrow. Let's come back and say, okay, now let's try this thing again. You look at the description here. These are descriptions of people who are, as it says here, walking in the ways, keeping his statutes, his commandments. These are characteristic of him. This is a person who is not simply known for religious association, religious attendance, but known for biblical saturation. It's the clothes they wear. It's the, it's the speech they give. It's the legacy they leave. I mean, you understand that, right? You and I right now are writing our eulogies. Whether it's given in 40 years or in five, right now, you're writing your eulogy. 
You don't write it then. When you die, you write it now. The question is when the eulogy is given. When people stand and speak on your behalf, how much does your eulogy point people to Christ and the work He did through you that caused other people to say, follow Him as He followed Christ? Or it's like that sort of funeral eulogy that you've seen. I've seen tons of these. Well, John, he was a fun guy. And he always crooked a joke. You know, he was, um, man, he's loved by a lot of people. And, um, man, we had some good times. And I remember one time we went on a houseboat trip and skiing behind the ski boats. And that was a fun time. And at one time we had a chance we were together. And it was just a good time of barbecue on July 4th. Every year he had the July 4th barbecue. You ask yourself, now what's being said at eulogies? What's not being said at eulogies? So the question is, at yours and my eulogy, what's being said and what's not being said? I pray that what's not being said are eulogies is what should be said. Out of great honor to Jesus Christ, this is a man who loved the Lord. He knew it. It was his heartbeat. It was where he lived. It was where he talked. It was the passion of his life. And sure, he was a sinner like the rest of us. And many of us know because he had to come and ask us for his forgiveness which is sort of ironically a measure of his maturity, that he humbled himself and asked for forgiveness. But character is seen clearly in the text from Scripture. Interesting, David Murrow writes the following, and I thought this would be interesting to kind of share with you. He wrote a book called Why Men Hate Going to Church. Listen to what he said. These are some of his statements. The title book, Why Men Hate Going to Church. He said, you cannot have a thriving church without a core of men who are true followers of Christ. If men are dead, the church is dead. He says, if we want to change the world, we must focus on men. When men are absent and anemic, the body withers. He goes on and says, the church, listen to this, this is a bit provocative. The church and the Titanic have something in common. It's women and children first. The great majority of ministry of Protestant churches is focused on children and next on women and men could care less. And last, he says, men don't follow programs, they follow men. A woman may choose a church because of the programs it offers, but a man is looking for another man he can follow. Now, regardless of whether or not you agree with all those theses, the point is this. Leadership in the local church for men, I'm talking to a room full of them, is often based upon the men to whom you follow and aspire to be like. Programs typically don't interest you guys. Understandably. You've got enough of that in your life. I'm going to commit to another one of those. You just see something else to commit to. But a person to emulate, a life to follow, some lessons to learn, a discipleship relationship to be engaged in, well, that's something worth committing to. One of the most discouraging things to see in the church today is the absence of so many godly men. Notice I didn't say that they're that they're not attending men or they're not serving men, but these, these godly men, these things that seemingly are the representatives of where a man is in his walk with the Lord privately, not just publicly. I, I just speak to you pastorally as a pastor of a church. One of my uh, first goals in going to the church I was at was to take the existing leadership and to just sort of take inventory with where they were and begin to develop that, and then to take any men who are interested in being themselves godly men and then begin to follow 
get them to follow the existing godly men already in place to begin to disciple them. So just having these discipleship relationships start to grow. In fact, the joke is now I've kind of called it D-Harmony. It's kind of what we've got going on. Um, we've got D-Harmony taking place at Castle View Baptist Church. We're sort of the northern version of CBC. So we're kind of like, you know, you're, we're like your daughter church. You guys are the southern version of CBC, Calvary Baptist Church. We're Castle View Baptist Church, so we've got CBC thing going on. Um, so we're just your northern, you know, daughter church up, up top in Indianapolis. Just so you guys know, you kind of get like we got the hand signal together and everything. Um, <laughs> that's happening for us. The reality, the reality though, is when I came to the church, I had found that these sort of this relational islands of all of these males in the church, and I couldn't really quite tell in taking inventory who were the men among the males. I just spend time with them, let them spend time with each other, and see who started to rise to the occasion and flourish. And he's just sort of saying, you know, I'll just take the relational Lone Ranger Christianity. And so I kind of do the Dr. Phil approach, you know, how's that working for you? I know how it's working. It's not. I know how it's working. So, we consider this. David tells his son Solomon, you have to do this. Your soul, your entire country's future are in your hands. Talk about pressure. How about just talk about your own home? He's talking about a kingdom. How about your home? How about your life? How about your locale? How about your relationships? How much will your decisions now impact those around you? That comes out of the character of your life. See, too often we think of character as being emulated in some other way. We think of it as sort of being, you know, sort of your connections as far as leadership. But the reality is character is what influences more than those simple points of position. Let's look at the second part of the text here, which gives us our second point. So the first point was character, all that being underneath that. The second part here is in verse 5. This is sort of a mind-blowing passage. That is uh, Marlon Brando meets uh, King David. And you'll understand here in a minute why. Verse 5. Moreover, you also know what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me, how he dwelt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel. Abner the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in the time of peace for blood that had been shed in war and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and the sandals on his feet. Listen to this now, verse 6. Act, therefore, according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. Another Hebrew idiom that means... Kill him. And I'm not even kidding. Verse 7. But deal loyally with the sons of Berezai, the Gildite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And there's also with you the Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. From Bahram, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Manhanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Key words there is, I will not. Verse 9. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him. You shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. <laughs> this is one of my all-time favorite parts of the Bible. Not because I 
recommending this by little application, <laughs> because sort of the significance of what's being stated here. But remember, deathbed speech. So you kind of got to be strong and courageous. You know, you know, this is sort of, you know, it's like the repeat of, you know, this Joshua entering into the promised land and passing the baton of, of theological faithfulness, passing the baton of integrity and character. And there, then there comes this other part, which is, oh, yeah, son, there's, um, there's three things left I need you to do. I need you to kill this guy, protect this guy, and kill this guy. What in the world? <laughs> what in the world? It's like Marlon Brando from The Godfather. You can see it now. You take care of that thing. <laughs> that thing we talked about. You take care of that. <laughs> Not a good Marlon Brando impersonation. Thank you. Probably come up on the microphone. <laughs> and then he says, "There's another guy. I want you to forever protect as long as you're king." What's happening here? Well, the significance, just to sort of outline this, moving from our outline from character as to descri- describing the, 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 the um, attributes of biblical masculinity is not only character, it's also conduct. Now, unique to this passage, and I think that's important to qualify, unless anybody starts getting excited from this, this passage and takes out of context. Unique to this passage is David telling the new king, here's what you need to do. I just say unique to this passage because I just want to be clear, nobody leave here tonight and say, I heard the guy say I should go kill people. Okay, I'm not coming to defend you if you go to the witness, if you get in the jury trial thing and, you know, because of some crimes you go commit after tonight. Okay, I just want to be clear. That's not what the literal application is here. What we can understand, though, is there are particular acts of conduct that come as a result of character that David is commending to Solomon. And that's what we can begin to sort of unpack here. You, you see this in verses 5 and 6, these three people. you got Joab. He wants him killed because of the fact that this guy killed two other men that he wasn't supposed to kill. It's supposed to be peace. This guy lied, dishonored, no integrity. David says, basically, I'm going to remember that. I won't do anything about it. I'm keeping his word, but I'm remember that. And so now he essentially gives the order to Solomon to make sure that that issue is dealt with. First Kings two seven, he says, "I want you to protect this guy over here. Protect the sons of Berozai, the Gildeite. Protect this people." And then verse uh, eight and nine, he wants him to take out this other guy for cursing him. And times are permitted to go back into those stories there in Second Samuel, but basically a guy who curses him in that moment. I mean, this has biblical masculinity all over it. I mean, just sort of translate this into modern-day scenarios in how we think through biblical masculinity. I don't know many women who, being single and considering the men that they want to be married to, say, you know, the kind of man I'd like to be married to is the kind of man that when I lean over in the middle of the night and say, honey, I think I hear something, he says, I did too. Do you want to go check on that? How are many women who are sort of looking for that kind of description of a man? There's a few other attributes I'm sure these ladies are not looking for, but I'm certainly sure that this one of them they also are definitely looking for. That guy who's just sort of like, you know what, I just shy away from any confrontation, even if it's for my safety and the safety of others. I mean, the reality is here, we see such clear resolve out of the manifestation of character, of the conduct that's about to follow, that is so very unique and yet so very common. Randy Stinson, in an article he wrote titled, Show Yourself a Man, said the following. Listen to this. He said, One should not overlook the fact that the characteristics of biblical masculinity can and should be cultivated. 
So regardless of where you are, you're growing in this. I'm growing in this. It's easy to recall at this point in David's own life experiences. When standing before Saul in 1 Samuel 17, 34 and 36, trying to convince Saul that he should be allowed to go out and fight against Goliath, David brings up past experiences that impact his ability to take on the current fight. He has already killed a lion, already killed a bear, and Goliath will be like them. Note also, this is not a self-reliant vision of masculinity in 1 Samuel 17, since he clearly understands that ultimately God delivered him from the mouth of the lion and the bear. So Randy Stinson is essentially saying here, in this reference I'm giving to you, he's essentially saying, listen, no matter where you are in your development as a godly man, whether it's really far down the road or it's just beginning, regardless of where you are, you are on the way to something more in your development of being godly as a man. So you're making an installment now for an investment that comes later in its return. You know that. You know that in retirement type terminology. Right? You know, begin at 60, begin at 20. You get 20 from payout at 80. Talking about today's opportunities, he says, God gives us all opportunities each day to resist passivity and develop biblical masculine characteristics. Each of the challenges men face should be viewed as instruments in God's hands that will help shape us as biblical men. These opportunities should be viewed with the same understanding exhibited by David. We must acknowledge that it is God who delivers and protects and cultivates. What's David ultimately asking his son to do here? He's asking him to be a leader with integrity. There's both a provider for his people and a protector. Now here's what's fascinating about this conversation if you consider what's taking place. He is giving his son, he's having a conversation with his son, for his son to take action. Which, by the way, his son won't be the one to take the action. Kings don't walk out of thrones and go slay people. Kings order other people to get slayed. So he's going to give instruction to a son who's going to ask somebody else to go take care of that action. To a people who never were in that throne room. Who never were aware of that conversation, but just see this man get killed. They do not have all the information. And what little information they have, it's quite likely they'll come to a different interpretation. And certainly give it misrepresentation. Now, what do you think happens? Solomon paralyzed with that fear of how people will think of me and what they will think of my new kingship and the fact that I'm establishing out of fear I should not do this stuff? Or say, this is a clear opportunity for me out of the integrity of my life and the establishment of ultimately what's going on here in the Davidic reign of the kingdom decide accordingly. Friends, here's a lesson for you and I. You and I have hard decisions to make at times that will come with misinterpretation and representation. But if we find ourselves making decisions based on how other people think of us, not of what the Lord thinks of us, more often than not, we're going to wrong, wrong, make the wrong decision. That paralyzes men in their decision making. If you decide based on what others think of you, not based upon the Lord thinks of you. You're perverted in how you go about making your decisions as a man. Doing what's right. Having integrity. Decision here would be met with various interpretations, and yet the decision is clear as to what needs to be done. All men have been called to lead in wherever God would place them. 
Whom leads whom is the question. Whoever is in authority. The other men who are not in authority are then known for loyalty, service, and discipline. They also are men. So men aren't only the title of leaders. They're also known for men in the response to leadership. So friends, the, the race here tonight is not who can get to the top of the totem pole. In position. No, no, no. It's who can in each of their relationships, regardless of where they are in responsibilities, play the role that God has asked them to play. To the manner in which he's asked them to do so. The practice of a leader, simply summed up as this. One word. Example. David commending to his son, by a flawed example, what Solomon needs to know himself and establish by his example which ultimately is seen in completion and in perfection by Christ's example. Born under the law, fulfilling the law, by perfect example of Christ's law, and in offering himself in our place. So we look to Christ, not David or Solomon, to be our example. Paul says himself, follow me as I follow Christ. The goal is not to make you a bunch of Solomonites. Or King David's. The goal for you and I is to become more like Christ. And how he was. The truth is, leadership is more about your practice than it is about your position. So I don't really care what position you have. I care about the practices you have. The life you live. It's out of that life that men are called to be leaders. One way to examine your leadership is to examine your example. Think about different areas of your life that God has put you in. Your work. What's your work ethic like? Your marriage. What are those returning from work, returning to home from work scenarios look like? Your weekends. Your money. Your time. And notice where the irony of all this, by the way. My work, my job, my time, my house. My marriage. No, 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 no. You got to go back to stewardship on that issue. Because if you see that personal pronoun really sort of giving you the prerogative behind your decision making, friends, you've already sort of misunderstood what it is God has given you. It's a stewardship. But we can think of our leadership as being practical, not just theological. Your communication skills, your handling of money, your handling of time. And the reality is life is lived out of two currencies time and money. So out of your time and out of your money, how do we see your integrity? For therein lies your priorities, your passions, your loves, your commitments. Reviewing what David has taught his son before he died, he says, Your future will be marked by your character and by your conduct. World War II was indeed a war that started out with what seemed like one obvious conclusion. Germany ruling the world. 1939, 1940, and on it went. Only six years later, 1945, on April 30th, Hitler commits suicide. Seven days later, Germany surrenders. Three months later, Japan surrenders. 
More than 17 million people died during the conflict. But the war that was finally won was won by one battle at a time. So gentlemen, you look around you and you see a carnage of males who never retook the hill to be the men that God had called them to be. The question is, when you write history from your life, what will your life have told us? What will your eulogy have said? What battles will you have fought? Or what, what white flags will you have simply waved? I'll be honest. This isn't some sort of motivational speech. Try harder. Do more. Be different. It's a reminder of what we're doing in the scriptures, which is returning to our calling in Christ. To live out that faith that we've placed in Him. That regenerating work He's accomplished. That fruit that He has been producing. So when people say, what makes your life different? Why is your conviction different? What's happening with you that seems different? Certainly the minority. I just point them to Christ. You point them to Christ. Both His character and His conduct on a cross for us that has given us an alternative way of viewing the world making money getting married having children living life in a way that is like nothing ever seen before that's how the war is won in Christ let me pray Father thank you for these men thank you for their attentiveness tonight God, I pray for their hearts, my hearts. God, you know me. And you know each of these men better than any one of us know each other. I would pray, Father, that for your word to penetrate into our hearts, be sprouting up in our life. Lord, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus. We thank you that we're not working for our salvation. We're just working it out. And then, God, when we fail, we're reminded that's why you came. But because you've came, we want to put that on display that we're different. Because you're different. You are the only true God. You are the only risen Savior. You are the Holy One of Israel. You are the great I Am. God, I pray for these men. I pray that perhaps some of them have sleepless nights. Perhaps have a conviction. Perhaps late night conversations waiting for them with their wives, for those whom are married. And have encouragement of what they want to continue in and need their wives as helpmates to continue them in, Father. Let that be our conversation perhaps for some, and yet for others, perhaps be a time of repentance. Wives forgiving them, seeing the fruit of what will come. And we pray for Calvary. Lord, let it not simply be a name, but in practice, be a group of people who point people back to Calvary. Who point people back to you. We look forward to seeing what you're going to do. We begin to pray already now for our hearts for tomorrow to build upon what has been planted here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.